0: Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are going to be talking to Ari Shapiro. Yes, the one from All Things Considered about his new book, The Best Strangers in the World. Stories from a life spent listening in it. Ari talks about his life growing up here in Portland and also all the adventures he's had around the world as a journalist. Also, he has some tips on how to calm one's nerves when one is about to go on stage at the Hollywood Bowl in front of like 18,000 people to perform with the band Pink Martini. Then, comedian, writer, and performer Demi Adigi eBay will make his triumphant Livewire return. We're gonna talk to him about the ongoing writer's strike and what that's been like for him. Plus, he's gonna perform a song that he wrote just for us. So that is the plan. It's going to be a great show. Don't go anywhere. Live Wire gets started right after this.
1: I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry.
0: I'm Vincent Cunningham. And this
2: is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious.
3: Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love books, movies, television, music, art.
1: And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course.
0: We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire was originally recorded in July of 2023. We hope you enjoy it. Now, let's get to the show. Hey, Elena. Hey,
3: Luke. How's it going?
0: It's going all right. I have some intrusive cat energy here in this room (laughs) where I'm recording from, so we're going to try to keep Bubbles Burbank at bay.
3: Maybe she's like Lucille Ball. She's like, why don't you put me in the show?
0: (laughs) I know, right? I'm mentioning her enough as it is, but... Uh, Are you ready for a little station location identification examination? Oh, yeah. This is where I quiz Elena about a place in the country where Livewire is on the radio. She's got to guess where I am talking about. All right. This city is located on Bear Lake, which many folks call the Rocky Mountain Caribbean because of the blue waters of Bear Mm. Lake.
3: Well, that's a good geographical indicator, Mm -hmm. but it only narrows it down to like five states.
0: (laughs) This will help you. This will zero you in on the state, I believe. The city was founded by Mormon settlers in 1859. Is it Provo, Utah? It is in Utah, it's not Provo, and it's not Salt Lake City, so... Logan, Utah. Logan, Utah is exactly (laughs) right. Wow, that was an effective hint I gave you. We are on the radio on Utah Public Radio on KUSR. They're in beautiful Logan, Utah. All right, are you ready to get to the show? Let's do it. All right, take it away.
3: From PRX, it's... This week, radio journalist and author Ari Shapiro.
4: There are very specific chapters in here for the Jews, the gays, the music fans, the journalists, the political junkies, the international affairs people. I was like, I can flag a chapter. Like, if
2: you're a Jew, read this one.
3: <laughs> and comedian and writer Demi Ebay.
2: I don't know when this happened, but I feel like there's been this shift in so much stuff that as a kid was like shorthand for nerd stuff that now is like, well, all the cool kids are going to the Renaissance fair
3: with music from our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of LiveWire, Lou Burbank. Thank you, Elena Passarello.
0: Thanks, everyone, for tuning in from all over the country, including beautiful Logan, Utah. We have a really fun, interesting show in store for you all this week. Of course, we've asked the LiveWire listeners a question. We asked, what is the best stranger you've ever met. Could you tell us about that person? This is related to Ari Shapiro's uh, really fascinating book about his time as a journalist. We're going to read those responses coming up in a few moments. First, though, we got to kick things off with the best news we heard all week. News. This, of course, is our little reminder at the top of the show. There is Some good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news you heard all week?
3: Oh, this news comes from Texas Hill Country. When I lived there, I used to go on Sunday drives through the Hill Country, and that is exactly what happened 30 years ago when Ronnie and Terry Urbanchik, uh, Ronnie runs a concrete company in San Antonio. they were taking a Sunday drive through the Hill Country, and they saw a for sale sign This beautiful stretch of land, 250 acres with live oaks and it swooped down to the Guadalupe River and there was a gorgeous creek on the property called Honey Creek and so they decided to buy it. They moved their whole family out there. I think there's like five of them and they lived in a 600 square foot house. And slowly but surely, they added more and more land to their property so that now they have uh, over 750 acres. And it sort of backs up to a natural area and a state park. And they had this idea that they could take care of their family for generations if they built a big subdivision on it. Because as you probably know, both San Antonio and Austin are really spreading into the hill country. Yes. So they tried to do that. Uh, There's like a 2,400-home subdivision. And they ran into a lot of environmental issues because they didn't know this, but they learned that the, that watershed, that creek, that river, it's just super pristine. It's also very important that it get protected for the natural flora and fauna that live there, like the golden-cheeked warbler and the blind salamander. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the they Golden all... Cheek Warbler definitely sounds like something you would write an article for the Audubon magazine about.
3: I thought they won the NBA championships, the Golden <laughs> Cheek Warblers. But, uh, but yeah, <laughs> so they ran into all these issues and then the Texas Park and Wildlife and the Nature Conservancy started working together and they got the Urbanchik family to agree to sell the land to them. Mm. And they sold it at a fifth of what they would make had they sold it to developers. Wow. It will join the natural area and the state park to make this massive 5,000-acre state park with a ton of public use. There's an underground river and caves. And they were a little worried because, you know, their children had grown up in this area and it was kind of their legacy. And they called the kids and they were like, well, it'd be okay if we didn't make this major deal. And the kids told them, quote, how much money does somebody need? Because a fifth of the sale price is still like $25 million. Okay. Uh, Even happier news, their backyard is now like the prettiest park in the world. And the Texas legislature just passed a billion dollar allotment for buying new parkland. So all y'all Texans out there who are thinking about putting up another Home Depot or whatever, you might try to work with these national organizations because they Mm -hmm. can make something even more beautiful, even more lasting, and something that does even more good for public interest.
0: The best news uh, that I heard this week, Elena, takes us out to Dixon, Iowa. And we're going to have to actually start a few years ago when Lauren Schroeder was about 14 years old. And Lauren Schroeder was volunteering at a food bank and had noticed something, which was there were lots and lots of canned and boxed goods available at the food bank, which... Uh, You know, if you've ever volunteered at a food bank or maybe even availed yourself of the services of a food bank, there usually is a lot of stuff that is very, as they say, shelf stable. Sure. But what Laura noticed was there was not a lot of fresh vegetables because – that's just in shorter supply. It can be difficult to kind of keep and all of that stuff. And she wanted to sort of fix that. And she kind of comes from the right family. Her family has a soybean and corn farm there in Dixon, Iowa. Nice. So she went home and she said to her parents, Hey, could I take a little like corner of the 150 acres and grow some vegetables for the food bank? And her first attempt at growing vegetables, which by the way, she then recruited her younger siblings into helping her with picking the vegetables and everything. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, she had to water these vegetables for like three hours a day. Cause it gets really hot in Iowa in the summer. So before and after her softball practice, she'd be out there watering these vegetables. Wow. All of this generated about 40 pounds of vegetables Uh, which she took around to some local um, food banks and other places, a a shelter that helps victims of domestic violence. You know, that's a pretty good crop for a teenager. Well, she really upped her game the next year and uh, expanded her plot of land and grew some more vegetables. And this year, she is getting close to growing her 7,000th pound (gasps) of produce that she is now distributing to the local area there in Dixon, Iowa, to people in need. So she's gone from the first crop being 40 pounds to a few years later, she's managed to grow 7,000 pounds of produce. Oh, my goodness. And she's trying to grow another 13,000 pounds before she graduates so that her total time in high school, she will have grown 20,000 pounds of produce to distribute to to folks that that could use that.
3: That's literal tons of food.
0: Literal tons of food. I'm going to say that's almost 10 tons of food, if I'm doing that math right here on the back of the envelope. (laughs) There's a really sweet kind of anecdote uh, in this article where uh, she shows up at a, a shelter for victims of domestic violence and is dropping off a bunch of these fresh vegetables. And a mother came out who was living there with her children, and the mother was just in tears because she said, you know, we used to grow vegetables ourselves and we've been displaced because of domestic violence. And so my kids getting to have these fresh this fresh produce that they couldn't have because we've been displaced it was so important and so meaningful to this woman that she was in tears and i was in tears reading the article just like a really really sweet story out of dixon iowa so the hard work of lauren schroeder and let's not forget about her younger siblings who've been forced to participate
3: the water kids (laughs) that's right
0: that's the best news i heard this week All right, let's get our first guest on over here. You're probably used to hearing their voice on this very radio station because he is, of course, one of the hosts of NPR's afternoon program, All Things Considered. His first book, The Best Strangers in the World, Stories from a Life Spent Listening, details his time traveling on Air Force One with President Obama, following the path of Syrian refugees fleeing war, and also what it's like to sing in front of 18,000 people at the Hollywood Bowl with the music group, pink martini, because let me tell you, this guy has range. Take a listen to our conversation with Ari Shapiro, recorded live at the Alberta Rose Theater, right here in Portland.
4: You all look nothing like what I imagined either. <laughs> uh... That old radio line. It's so
5: nice to see you. It's, uh,
4: you know, the last time you and I saw each other, neither of us had gray hair.
0: I know, but you somehow are so much more well-preserved than I am. Like, And yet you're
4: much more well-dressed than I am, which is we all know to, matters a lot on the It's the corset, radio. really,
0: I think. <laughs> it is really nice to see you, Ari. You and I worked at NPR together a long time ago, and we're kind of sort of both young reporters trying to find
4: a full-time job there yeah. and kind of make it work. and Filling and in for this person time. on maternity leave, yeah. that person on an academic fellowship, mm. just kind of popping in wherever we could. Those yeah. parts of the book, and by the way,
0: there's something for everyone in this book, but the parts that were specifically <laughs> about being a reporter at NPR trying to find a budget line, that really spoke to me, so thank you for that.
4: <laughs> it's funny, as I was working on the book and having conversations about who it would appeal to, I said, you know, I want this to be a book for everyone, but also there are very specific chapters In here for the Jews, the gays, the music fans, the journalists, the political junkies, the international affairs people. I was like, so, like, I can flag a chapter. Like, if you're a Jew, read this one. If you're you're a music fan, read that one. Yeah.
0: I was curious, though, when I started reading it, because you are a real journalist, you're one of the hosts of all things. All things around real. I want the radio audience to know I did not put air quotes around real.
5: <laughs> I pointed
0: at Ari so everyone knew who I was talking to. But, like, you're a real journalist, so did you have to be careful about sort of what you put in this book?
4: Oh, totally. I mean, like, there's one chapter, speaking of Jews, uh, there's one chapter that I titled The Third Rail of Journalism. And it's all about covering the war in Israel. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, like, every journalist knows that if you're reporting on Israel, there's, you're, you can't win. Like, you are walking into something where people will be furious at you no matter what you do. And so I thought, Ari, are you really not only writing a chapter in this book about covering Israel, but writing about your personal experience and perspective on covering Israel as a Jew? Mm. Like, what are you thinking? (laughs) And there were a lot of moments like that. You know, I talk about in 2004, my husband and I got married when San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom, he's now the governor of California, but he was then mayor of San Francisco, and he just decided he was going to start doing same-sex marriages, which was a huge national controversy at the time. And my now-husband, who had been my college boyfriend and I, wanted to go get married. And, you know, you and I were both beginning journalists back in those days, and it's like you're stepping into the middle of the culture wars and participating in them, rather than chronic them, which is what we as journalists think we're supposed to be doing. And so it felt really kind of uncomfortable and foreign and strange writing this memoir where I'm revisiting some of these experiences and talking about it from the inside looking out. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, You write in the book that uh, you came out while you were a student at Beaverton High School,
4: Mm -hmm. right here
0: in the greater Portland, Oregon area, and that you might have been possibly the first student to have done so.
4: I mean, I have no way of confirming. I don't know if there were out students prior to my senior year in 1995 I wasn't aware of any. There weren't any at the time that I was there. But what there was in Portland, Oregon in the 90s was the City Nightclub, which some of you may be aware was, I believe at the time, the only all-ages gay club in the United States. Wow. Yeah. So like my friends and I would go there just doused in CK1. (laughs) By the way, (laughs) you mentioned that in the book and... It hurt
0: because I stopped wearing CK1 like four years ago. (laughs) Like that was a punchline in the book and I saw way too much of myself.
4: Well, you know, in the book I described it as the non-binary scent of the 90s, but we didn't even have that term. It was was the unisex scent of the 90s.
0: Uh, We have to take a quick break here on LiveWire. We're talking to Ari Shapiro. His uh, book is The Best Strangers in the World. This is LiveWire coming to you from the Alberta Rose Theater. Stay with us. We'll be right back in a moment. Hey, Elena. What we're Mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you.
1: Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by Ph.D. scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. z produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make z your first drink of the night. Drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com slash LiveWire to get 15% off your first order when you use LiveWire at checkout. ZBiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com LiveWire and use the code LiveWire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to ZBiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times.
0: Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. Uh, this week we're talking to Ari Shapiro from NPR's All Things Considered. He has a book out, The Best Strangers in the World, Stories from a Life Spent uh, Listening. Do you feel like there is, you're from Portland, is there a Portland-ness to how you approach journalism, how you approach uh, you know your singing career, just like did this place infuse you with with anything that you
4: carry with you? Well, Portland taught me how to relate to people who were different from me, you know, especially after I came out in one thousand nine hundred and ninety five I started going to this queer youth group where suddenly I was surrounded by people who might have been struggling with addiction or homelessness or doing sex work to get by, or like way, way outside of my suburban bubble of privilege. And being able to kind of walk between those worlds and on the weekends hang out with, like, you know, the gutter punks and the Butch Baby Bulldite gang, and like those were my posse on the weekends. And then on and maybe weekdays, the first time
0: Butch Baby Bulldite
4: gang has ever been said on LiveWire. <laughs> you know, there was a girl in that gang who everyone called Julie the Junkie, and she gave me a leather dog collar and wrist cuff as like a sign of protection mm. that I still have to this day. Aww. It's true. Um, And so I feel like being able to walk between worlds, go from that world on the weekends to kind of my schedule of AP classes in my big suburban white high school on the weekdays, that taught me something about kind of being an ambassador and a translator that I use as a journalist now for groups that I don't necessarily have any personal connection to. But if I'm going into Zimbabwe to a presidential election rally, or I'm going to a Bikers for Trump rally, or I'm going to a refugee crisis, like those skills of walking between worlds are something that I picked up in Portland that I use every day as a journalist. Mm.
0: Something else you mentioned in this book. Yeah, I think that's worth a round of applause. He doesn't get that at his real job at NPR. I don't nobody... get to hear
4: people clap when I'm on the radio. Aww. The
0: producers, of all things consider don't come in and <laughs> applaud, applaud for you me. after you do an interview? <laughs> no. no. Something that you mentioned in this book that I had never thought of, This, even though I grew up in the Northwest, was that we call it the coast. We yes. do not call it the beach because yes. you write...
4: I say it's to discourage false hopes of a warm, sunny day... <laughs> You know, if you call it the beach, people are going to get images of Mai Tais and yeah. hula dancers. And that is not what Oregon has to no. offer. No.
0: Yeah. No, it's the coast. It's, the it's coast. definitely the coast. Know that it's probably going to be raining at Yahats or wherever <laughs>
4: you're going. <laughs> um, but you'll get great Dungeness crab. Yeah. That's right. Um,
0: you write in the book about how in college you were, really, you were in the acapella group. You were really yeah. into theater performance. You thought about maybe being an actor. How did you end up in journalism? That didn't seem like it was something that was on your radar.
4: Not a bit. It was totally random. Like, I was graduating from college and applied to literally everything I could think of because I was an English major and didn't know what I wanted to do. Like, I had never taken a journalism class. I had never written for the school paper. I um, applied for Club Med. I applied for the Peace Corps. I applied for an NPR internship. I got rejected for literally everything, including the NPR internship, which I I, I think (laughs) is important to talk about because if you think... Failure, like, is something that doesn't happen to successful people. Well, NPR's Ari Shapiro was rejected for an NPR internship. (laughs) Yeah. So failure happens to everyone. If you're failing, you're doing it right. Um, And then I found out that Nina Totenberg, the legendary legal affairs correspondent Mm -hmm. who remains a good friend and mentor, uh, hires her own interns. So I applied to her. She gave me a job. And I just clung on and never left. And 20-some years later, here I am. We're talking to Ari
0: Shapiro, by the way. His new book is The Best Strangers in the World. Uh, This is Livewire. Did you actually try to get a sort of permanent real job in D.C. by cooking an elaborate meal at Nina Totenberg's house? It was Nina's idea. For like Charles Dingle or something?
4: Yeah. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Correct. So my internship was ending. I had no job prospects. Nina knew that I loved to cook and I was living in this teeny little one-room apartment that I shared with a lesbian I found on Craigslist. Um, (laughs) Not that part of Craigslist.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
4: and Nina said, hey, you love to cook, and you're looking for a job. Why don't I hire you to throw a dinner party where you'll cook and also be a guest, and I'll invite all of these kind of Washington VIPs who could like, plausibly offer you a job. So she invited... Congressman John Dingell, before he died, his wife who later took the seat, Debbie Dingell, uh, the former Deputy Attorney General, Jamie Gorelick, like this really impressive list of Washingtonians. I spent all day at Nina's house cooking, and then sat down at the dinner table. And Nina said, "All right, well, this is my intern, Ari. He cooked the food you just ate. He's looking for a job, and not as a chef." (laughs) Which one of you is going to hire him? (laughs) And there were crickets. So I stayed at NPR. (laughs) I love the idea
0: of imagining Nina recounting that dinner. Congressman Dingle, no comment. (laughs) Okay, so I know you sing with Pink Martini, Mm -hmm. which is an incredibly cool thing and very, like, I'll say you're probably one of the only NPR hosts that sings with Pink Martini on a regular basis. It's a pretty cool thing. But I just assumed that, like, you're from Portland, they're from Portland, you're this famous NPR person, they're a
4: famous band, you all came together in your fame. But that
0: is not really yeah. what happened. No. Like, you go way back
4: with yeah. them. Yeah, I, like, I was a fan of theirs when I was in high school, and I became friends with them after college, but... At the point that I started singing with them, I was certainly not famous. Like, I was on the air at NPR as a justice reporter, but I was not, you know, a host of all things considered. Um, This was actually 2008 or 2009. I started singing with the band, like, 13 years ago, Mm -hmm. and... um, I guess Thomas just knew a good investment when he saw one. <laughs> but, like,
0: did you, you had your first gig with them at the Hollywood yes. Bowl?
4: Yeah, the first time I ever sang live on stage with a band anywhere <laughs> <laughs> was in front of 18,000 people at the Hollywood Bowl with a band that I had idolized since I was in high school. Uh, so no pressure.
0: Yeah. Uh, How do you, like... Control your nerves at that point. Like when somebody you're...
4: once said, the key is to get all of the butterflies flapping in the same direction, <laughs> which I actually think is a really good way of thinking about it. Like you don't want the nerves to go away; you just want to be able to channel them in a useful,
5: mm-hmm.
4: you know, path. Like funnel the water towards the desired outcome, so it doesn't just flood the farmer's plant. I'm trying. I'm yeah, I'm no. grasping for the metaphor. <laughs> I don't know. I'm. Yeah, You had a pretty outdoorsy experience really as a did. kid around here. The thing that my parents taught me was the more you know about the world, the more interesting life becomes. And so my mother learned about wildflowers, and I got into birdwatching, and my dad would take us mushroom hunting. And like, that is a principle that now I apply to my work at All Things Considered. Because I wake up every day knowing that by the time I go to sleep, I will have learned about something that I didn't know yesterday. And and it's an extension of that principle that my parents taught me as applied to nature that now I apply to business, politics, arts, science, and everything else that we do on ATC.
0: I think you're sort of, as a uh, radio professional, jumping to my next question, answering it without me even needing to ask it, which is, what is your guiding principle when you go into an interview? Mm -hmm. What are you hoping... to to accomplish?
4: It just depends so much on the kind of interview I'm doing. You know, if I'm interviewing the head of the Texas legislature about the abortion bill, it's going to be a very different kind of thing from if I'm interviewing Meryl Streep about the movie that she's talked about a thousand times already that day. And so the thing that I love about All Things Considered is that I get to do both of those kinds of things and many other sorts of things Besides that, I mean, fundamentally, I want a real conversation, I want a moment of connection, I want a moment of insight, I want to get someone off their talking points. But beyond that, each one is pretty unique, which is sort of a wonderful thing about the job is that it's never the same twice.
3: Do you think about the listeners when you're having these these one-on-one conversations with people and you're trying to connect to them? Are the millions of people that are eventually going to be hearing it a part of the exchange? Or do they yeah. come later? There
4: are two ways that I think about the listeners. One is that I want them to be... I want to be a surrogate for them. Like, if I'm witnessing something extraordinary, I want the listener to feel like they are in my shoes. And so in that sense... I kind of want to get out of the way. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to be the center of attention. Um, I want them to imagine that they could be there. And the other way in which I often think about listeners is that I get an opportunity to ask powerful people tough questions that most of our listeners won't have. So to give you an example, I was at the UN Climate Summit in 2021 in Glasgow, Scotland, and I spent most of the week talking to young climate activists from all over the world. And towards the end of the week, I got a sit-down interview with John Kerry, who was President Biden's climate envoy. And in that interview... I played clips for him from some of the young climate activists who I had spoken to from Uganda, from Samoa, from other countries, and I thought, you know, these people, for the most part, are never going to have a chance to ask John Kerry these tough questions, to challenge him, to put these questions to him, and because I do have the opportunity, I have to do right by them and by the millions of All Things Considered listeners who are going to be listening to this saying, but why don't you ask them this thing that they care deeply about that they may never have a chance to ask them about?
0: You've been in war zones. you've You've been in places that are pretty unsafe. You've also sang in front of thousands of people. Is there some way that you relate those two things? Like, and we were talking earlier about, you said, try to, have the butterflies all flap in the same direction. Like, when you're about to go on stage and you're feeling nervous, you think, well, it's not Iraq. Or when you're in Iraq, you're like, well, it's not the Hollywood Bowl.
4: Well, I, you know, I think in every instance, if you're doing the best you can do in that moment, it's because you're listening and responding. Whether you're like, you have your antenna out for danger, or whether it's, am I losing the audience? How do I get them back? Or if it's, wait, that person said something that doesn't sound right, I need to challenge and follow up on it. I'm trying to keep my senses of perception wide open to what is actually happening. And so for me as a journalist, whether I'm in a war zone, or for me as a performer at the Hollywood Bowl, what I need to do is sort of stay permeable, mm. stay sensitive, stay aware, and react in the moment to what is actually happening as opposed to what I expect will happen or what my preconceived notions were of what would have happened.
0: Yeah, I think you, you write in the book that you often tell journalism students, if you end up getting the story that you were expecting that you were going to get before you went out. You're doing
4: something wrong. Right, exactly. Yeah, because you go out to find out what's actually happening. And of course, you do your preparation and your homework in advance, so you have some idea, some information. But if you could do it all remotely, then what's the point of actually going there?
0: Right. Mm -hmm.
4: Why did you want to write a book? Like, what did
0: you want to say in this that you can't say to millions of people over the radio every day?
4: It's something that friends have asked me often over the years, which is, how do you stay optimistic in the face of all the terrible things that are happening in the world? Friends often say, like, you as a journalist talk to people on the worst day of their lives, whether it's a war, a mass shooting, a revolution, a natural disaster, and yet I am optimistic, and I do believe in humanity's basic goodness, and friends find that puzzling. And the answer that I have given my friends over the years is a version of what is... Now this book, which is, I mean, the title sort of says it: the best strangers in the world, these people who give me hope, who, as I've gone through my life as a journalist and also as a performer, meeting them has subtly changed who I am. And this is my way of, in a way, kind of like, it's almost like a memoir told through the stories of others, sharing the stories of those who have altered my path, who have stuck with me as I go through life and go through the world and go through my career as a journalist. And and, and my effort to share that with others.
0: Well, it is a great book. It's The Best Strangers in the World, uh, written by Ari Shapiro, right here on Livewire Radio from PRX. Um, Ari, now, here's the thing. Uh, you,
4: I have to play a game, <laughs> don't
0: I? You are, of course, one of the hosts of All Things Considered. Uh, we were wondering, though, if there were some things that maybe you wouldn't do. Uh, we want to run an exercise we're calling Some Things Considered. Oh. All right,
4: I'm ready. All right.
0: Ari Shapiro, would you consider participating in Portland's naked bike ride? Oh, totally, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I thought. Um, Would you consider reading an underwriting message from Tushy Bidet Company?
4: Oh, sure, please. Come on, Luke. Yeah, no problem. As a gay man, I think we need to normalize butt stuff.
0: Ari, would you consider competing on The Masked Singer?
4: No. No, if I'm going to sing, I want credit. I want Uh my face to show. That's a good point. (laughs) Now, would I be a judge or a host? Absolutely.
3: Oh, okay.
0: Would you consider buying NPR music a bigger desk? The current one is...
4: (laughs) I consider Bob Boylan... A good friend, uh-huh. and I think if I offered to buy him a larger desk, he would—he would think of it as such a slap in the face. Mm-hmm. He might never speak to me again. Ooh. So no. There's a
0: great story from about how that you know NPR tiny desk thing came around when you and I worked there together. Ari Bob yes. was the director of All Things Considered, yeah. meaning the person who picks the songs that are going to, you know, happen before and after interviews and stuff. And remember his office was just stacks of CDs. CDs, yes. He just was like, and that's really what he cared about was the music. And then then he had this little program. And they got
4: more letters asking what the music between segments was than anything else. Which was
0: hurtful for Robert Siegel, I believe.
4: Uh, Surely. And in the early days of the internet, Bob Boylan created All Songs Considered, which started out as just almost like a mixtape every week Mm -hmm. of some of the stuff that he was playing. Playing between segments and then it evolved from there and they would have
0: bands that were going to, to do other things just stand in front of his actual desk and yeah. play a song wow. and yeah. thus the, the tiny desk was born um, Ari Shapiro would you consider introducing Nina Totenberg as Totes Magoats sometime just because it would be funny <laughs>
4: Depends on the audience. (laughs) On all things considered, no. But if Nina were making an appearance on Livewire, I would 100% say, (laughs) please welcome Totes Magoats. That's how you play Some
0: Things Considered with Ari Shapiro, everyone. Thank you so much. That was Ari Shapiro right here on Livewire, Ari's new book, The Best Strangers in the World. Stories from a life spent listening is available now. And of course, you can always hear him on All Things Considered. Hey, special thanks this episode of Livewire to Mary Felice Crow of Portland, Oregon. Mary, if you don't know, is part of the Livewire member community and generously supports our show with a donation each month. And we are really thankful for that support because it is what genuinely allows us to keep live Wire rolling on so mary thank you so much for supporting the show this is LiveWire. as we like to do each week we've asked our listeners a question based on ari's book about all these people that he's interviewed over the years we wanted to know about the best stranger that our listeners had ever met elena has been collecting up those responses where do you see him
3: Here's one from Sarah. Sarah says, a friend bailed on me for a concert, and so I resold her ticket online, and I ended up sitting next to the person who bought it, and we got to chatting, and we had so much in common that we decided to stay in touch. Four years later, she's become one of my best friends. Love you, Emily. (laughs) That's great. Isn't that awesome? I mean,
0: that's a real life lesson to just be open to, The universe and new people and new experiences. I feel like the older I get, the more kind of shut down I get around having to interact, you know, maybe with somebody sitting next to me at a concert who I don't already know. Yeah. But that's an example of how great that can be.
3: Yeah, you already have one thing in common because you're both there to see the same artist.
0: Uh, Who's another great stranger that one of our listeners met?
3: Okay, I love this one from David. David says, it was around midnight. I had a flat on the freeway, a spare, but no jack. All of a sudden, a young man pulled over in a pickup truck, and he not only had a jack, but he insisted on changing the tire. I offered to pay him, but he refused. And I asked him where he was going. He said he just cruises around to see if people need help. That almost sounds mythic.
0: (laughs) Well, I was going to say, you know, I grew up in the church, and there was versions of that story always going around Gospel outreach Christian fellowship, Mm -hmm. that it would be like, and then I went down to the house where the person lived. They told us they've been dead for years. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of like kind of angelic, miracle like stories that I grew up with, but sounds like this might have been a real flesh and blood human being who helped that listener out. Okay, one more quick one before we get out of here.
3: Oh, I love this one from Ted. Ted was visiting his son who is in a college town working part time at a restaurant. And they were walking to dinner, and according to Ted, his son said, let's cut through here, through the alley, which made Ted nervous. And then Ted saw a figure near the other end who was getting up and walking toward Ted and his son, and Ted says he had clearly spent more time outside than inside. Mm -hmm. But then... Ted's son said, hey, Rob, how you doing? And then the guy smiled and said, yeah, man, I'm good. How are you doing? Is this your dad? And then (laughs) Ted's son introduced the two men. And Ted says, the man grabbed my hand in both of his, slapped me on the shoulder and said, great job, man. And then as they were walking away, Ted's son said, that's Rob. We feed him at the restaurant sometimes. Ted says, my favorite stranger in that story was my son. So much of what I'd hoped for him came true. And I didn't even know it. Oh, wow
0: I know well, That was a beautiful story Thank you to everyone Who sent in your responses We've got a listener question For next week's show That uh, we will bring your way In just a few moments First though Let's introduce our next guest In fact you know what Maybe we'll just use His Instagram bio To introduce Demi Adige eBay. Here's what it says Demi Adige eBay is a director Comedian Writer And then it just says Insert silly fourth thing As a joke He's written on the TV show, The Good Place, as well as for the Marvel Universe. Lately, he's been working on the Apple Plus animated series, Strange Planet. Of course, he also made those incredibly elaborate 21st of September videos for many years. They racked up millions of views. Um, When we recorded this conversation with Demi last June, the writers' strike was still ongoing. Of course, that pitted the Writers Guild of America against the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. Uh, thankfully, there has since been a resolution, but when we were talking to a Demi, uh, that was still happening, so we were talking about his experience with it, and we're going to hear that now. This is Demi Adige Ebay, recorded live at the Alberta Rose Theatre in Portland, Oregon, back in June. Take a listen. Hello. Hi, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's so nice to be here. Um, so we were talking uh, in the green room, and you said you decided to do like, the most Portland thing ever, which was bike yes. to the show. And
2: I'm glad that you mentioned that, because as soon as I walked out here, I was like, they're going to see how sweaty I am, and we'll have to address it. So yes, <laughs> uh, I did bike here. Uh, thank god you guys can see it, and everyone at home has just got to imagine. It's not mm-hmm. that bad if you're listening. <laughs> now, but you live in LA most of the time. What is more time-consuming?
0: being a writer uh, in Hollywood or being a striking writer and going (laughs) to the picket
2: line. I I would say the only way that uh, being a striking writer is more consuming is that having the free time means you just get crazy and you start doing things. It's like you're solving problems you don't have to solve. Really? Where it's like I'm just like mm, I don't like these doors. I'm gonna install new doors. And it's like <laughs> don't you write? You do not do home improvement. Don't do that. Uh, but I, I I do miss being in a room and feeling like the time that you're spending is constructive and communal. And I feel like going out on the strike lines is so nice because it does just feel like you're seeing all these people and just being like oh it feels like like going to camp for a little bit but it also has the vibes of like the beginning of the pandemic where you're like we can do this forever and then you're like "Uh, uh, well right (laughs) let's not test that
0: yeah i was wondering if that isn't like a very small silver lining to this for for wga members which is you know you're all physically together out on these picket lines and you're meeting people from other shows and other projects that you would have never otherwise. Is there a solidarity in that?
2: Absolutely. And I, I think it's very fitting because I I think a lot of what the WJ is fighting for right now is the idea to preserve writing as a communal medium and not a thing that's just sort of sourced out to like a small room of people who are meeting on Zoom for a couple weeks that then uh, one person is going to write all of. And I feel like a lot of people don't get involved in the production of their own work anymore. And it's very, I was on a show just before the strike where I was one of two writers that got to be on set for the show, despite having eight writers that were in the room. And it's like a lot of those people don't get experience of being on production and producing their own episodes. And it's like a lot of people don't get to meet other writers because of that or don't get like involved in the process and so getting to be out on the strike lines and being like here's this big group of people who all want to do the same thing sharing their experiences sharing their like the the things that their horror stories and whatnot it feels very like enriching and communal and it's it's the same feeling as going to a writer's room and feeling like you're messing around and being like this is part of the process of creating uh, which I think dies down a lot now with uh, the stuff that we are trying to stop with the strike. But
0: I mean, would it be accurate to say that the way the industry is, is trying to move and with the streaming and all that is that being a professional writer of, like, television will not really be a job anymore or not a job someone can make their living at? That's
2: definitely the case if the AMPTP gets their way. It's hard because I think there are a lot of people who will make a living in this and do make a living in this and it's like people sort of go like what well, but writers get paid a lot of money and it's hard to sort of argue that they don't because a lot of us do but I think it's that same thing of like you're hearing from the top 10% of writers and seeing them as the shining example of what everyone is but the truth is is like there's such a low barrier to entry there, is, there are assistants and script supervisors and like low level staff writers who do not get paid that much and are required to do more work than is supposed to be required at their level and it's like mm-hmm. you're at a certain point where like you don't want to say no to work that is supposed to be good for your career, but also doesn't result in you getting the advantages that you used to be able to get at that level. I, I do feel like when the bottom starts dying out, like a lot of people are just like, "Well, but Chuck Lorre makes five million a year." Right. It's like, "Yeah, Chuck Lorre will be fine. We're not fighting for Chuck Lorre." <laughs> uh, but it, it, I, that's I, the I, guy that
0: made the Big Bang Theory. In right. Case I, you're...
2: I said that like we all know Chuck Lorre. I I don't know where I am. Um, yeah. Yeah.
3: But a lot of the people, too, who are in these beginning, like the script supervisor positions, or maybe it's their first year yeah. on the team, are part of this movement uh to- have a lot better representation in TV and, yes. and have all these different voices so they're the ones that you want in TV more than anything, right? Absolutely. But they're the ones who maybe aren't going to be able to make a living because they they haven't made it to the upper echelon before these these things have started changing. Totally.
2: And I, I keep saying that uh, I feel like people are like, what are you fighting for? And it's like, I'm not fighting for myself, I'm fighting for the idea of like the next generation of writers, the people who like are being forced into smaller rooms and not getting paid as much because they're being told like, oh, just write the stuff first and then we'll green light it, and then maybe you'll get a chance. Or and like,
0: I want to just clarify again: when you say smaller rooms, those are writers' rooms, yeah, oh right. yes. not just like a small
2: room yeah. that they're, people their being held are in. getting small. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> they're putting us all in just like boxes. Right. <laughs> um, no, but like in uh, in rooms where it's like there are less uh, writers on a project, but they're like, hey, you have uh, ten weeks and four people to write. 10 scripts of a season of television which is like you're not going to get good tv that way they're being like we support diversity and we're going to bring in diverse uh writers but then giving them low orders or being like okay we can only afford to pay half of you the rate that you want it so here's the cap if you can't take it it's fine we'll pay someone else it's just like as diversity gets bigger in the industry uh, it's no coincidence that like tech giants have come in and started being like, okay, well, how do we make this a lot cheaper, and how do we, mm. you know, get the credit of doing the things that people seem to say that they want us to do, but also not have to put in the work or the finance to like mm. actually support these things or see them through because they're like risk averse. You're listening
0: to Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are talking to comedian creator and writer, Demi eBay. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. When we come back, we're going to hear a special love song from Demi, which is not not affected by the fact that he's going through a breakup. Not not at all. So don't go anywhere. More Live Wire coming up. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl gray. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Live Wire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Okay, before we get to our musical guest this week, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be talking with comedian and friend of the program, Hari Kondabalu. Of course, he's been on NPR's Wait Wait Don't Tell Me for a long time, plus WNYC, Conan, Jimmy Kimmel Live, The Late Show with David Letterman, among a bunch of other places. Uh, he had a 2018 Netflix special, which is called Warn Your Relatives, and it made a ton of best-of lists. Plus, he, of course, made the critically acclaimed documentary The Problem with Apu, which actually changed how they did the casting and do the casting on the TV show uh, The Simpsons. Okay, so we're going to be talking to Hari about all kinds of things. Then we are going to talk to author Christy Coulter. Uh, she'll talk about her new book, Exit Interview. The life and death of my ambitious career it is about her time working at amazon where she was in the 98th percentile of people who work there as in she lasted longer than most people do and also check this out we're going to have some music from indie rock legends the band quasi it's going to be a great episode of live Wire, so you got to make sure to tune in for it speaking of Livewire radio that's what you're listening to right now i'm luke burbank here with elena passarello also, we're talking to Demi Adige eBay. Now, before that break, we were talking about the writer strike, and we also wanted to find out what Demi's been up to since he's not spending all his time writing television. We're going to hear about that. Plus, Demi will present us with a very special love song written for his ex-girlfriend. Take a listen to this. Now amidst the the strike and all the other things you have going on I noticed on Instagram you have
2: made which, time Which by the way I want to clarify is nothing because of the strike I'm not doing anything. Well you're, right. Go- right. Well, you're <laughs> going to a Renaissance fair? Yes. That's is... what I saw on Instagram. Yeah, that's the level of uh, what, work we're at right where, now. Where? <laughs> why? How? I don't know when this happened, but I feel like there's been this shift in so much stuff that as a kid was like shorthand for nerd stuff that now is like, well, all the cool kids are going to the Renaissance Fair. And I'm just like, I feel like it was this year, like I I just saw on Instagram, like everyone's at the Renaissance Fair. (laughs) Where was the Renaissance Fair in LA? It's like 40 minutes outside of LA. It's also, it's called the Renaissance Pleasure Fair, which I never fully under, Hmm. no one clarified why. (laughs) I don't like it as a name. I didn't. That sounds like they're trying to sell more tickets. Yes. uh, And I guess it worked. Because everyone was at the pleasure fair, <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was really fun. It felt like going to ye old Disneyland. <laughs> I, I was truly really just like I set, I went there with the goal of like I'm gonna get a turkey leg, and then when we got there, it was just like, well, you can also get me. and I was like, oh right, there's all sorts of medieval foods and like all sorts of medieval games and all these things, and it's just a blast. Did you joust or anything? No, <laughs> they won't. They don't let me hold the big sword.
0: <laughs> Did you have to dress up at all with this was this a cosplay type of event?
2: You don't have to, but I certainly did. <laughs> uh, I it's so unfortunately with an event like this, when I hear that I'm going with friends and we're all like we're going to dress up, I start thinking great. Here's the guideline of what we're supposed to do. What is the weirdest thing I could do within that guideline? And uh, I thought, okay, well, I could go as Martin Lawrence's character from Black Knight, yes. which is just a jersey. And everyone would be like, that's not Renaissance anymore. I'd be like, uh uh, uh but it is. <laughs> uh, I could dress like someone going to Beyonce's Renaissance uh, ah, show. Sure. And I eventually just settled on getting a giant cloak that I could sweat underneath and pretend to be a friar. I was going <laughs> to shave my head, but I was like, I-, I spent so long growing out this hair, I'm not going to do it. Good. But that was the right decision. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Um... Demi, you are such a talented performer, along with being a writer. The last time you were here on the show, um, you sang the Christmas song that none of us knew we needed, but we sure did. I believe it was called uh, Rock and Roll Santa? Mm-hmm. That's correct. And I understand that you have prepared another song from the heart Yes, for
2: us. Really, just really, you know, from the chambers of my heart here. What, um, what's, <laughs> the, um, what's the song about? So, uh, it's a little bit of a setup for this. I recently went through a breakup. Oh, I'm sorry. Aww. Aww. Oh, it's fine. But uh, in, the process of, in the process of the relationship, I was like, uh, I wanted to write a song for them to express how I felt about them. And I never got a chance to perform it for them. So I figured I don't want it to go to waste. Mm-hmm. I'd love to perform it tonight. Do you want to hear that from Demi Adigi eBay?
5: All right.
0: I really wanted you to be playing a lute from the Renaissance fair. I,
2: I again, if I if I'd known that was the case, I'd be like, okay, I'll show up with a whole medieval right. merry band of right. misfits.
0: Does this um does this song have a, a title?
2: Uh, no, but I guess you could call it uh, Lucky, maybe. Okay. I didn't really get as far as title. I was just like, oh, the song is written. Well, you were dealing with
0: a lot of heartbreak, so mm-hmm. I'm dealing
2: with so much right now.
0: Okay. <laughs> this is Demi Digi eBay here on Livewire.
5: Never been the blessed type, I'm plagued with constant blunder. I've fallen far more times than I have stood. But ever since you first walked by, my life has been filled with wonder. I fell in love with you, and now the falling feels so good because you turned my scary thunderstorms to a gorgeous rainbow. You make the three leaf clovers feel like four come true, and I love standing next to you, though you smell just like cat pee, and you snore. (laughs) Your voice still gives me butterflies in every intonation. When you say, don't write that cat pee line, or I'm leaving you, I swear. My heart is yours, and that's my vow. I love the way you scrunch your brow when I play the professionally recorded final version. And the cat pee line is still there. Been together for so long, and you're still curious. Like when you ask me why I wrote that, knowing you smell fine. I know you've got good hygiene, I just chose that for the rhyme scheme. And you point out the cat pee part is not the part that rhymes (laughs) I love you when you're happy, and I love you when you're not I love you when you're mad, you've heard the song play at a bar I love you when you try to smash my instruments in protest and I love you when you fail to find my mini-sized guitar I love you when you stop me as I leave you in the morning I always want to stay I hate to go You ask me what I'm doing next and I say I'm off to PDX to sing this song live on the radio (laughs) Sing it on Livewire Radio. Yeah, yeah. I hope this isn't sappy. You make me so, so happy. Gonna say you smell like Cappy on the radio. <laughs> Demi, a
0: Digi eBay right here on Livewire. That was the multi talented Demi Adigi eBay right here on Livewire. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Livewire. A huge thanks to our guests,
3: Ari Shapiro and Demi Adigi eBay. Laura Haddon is our executive producer, Heather D. Michelle is our executive director, and our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Molly Pettit is our technical director and our house sound is by Daniel Blake. Trey Hester is our assistant editor. Our marketing and production manager is Karen Pan. Rosa Garcia is our operations associate. Jackie Ifara is our production fellow and Aunt Diaz is our intern. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, Al Alves, and A Walker Spring, who also composes our music. This episode was mixed by Molly Pettit and Trey Hester.
0: Additional funding provided by the Marie Lamp from Charitable Foundation. LiveWire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Mary Felice Crow of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear LiveWire, When we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many Many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of LiveWire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time. Because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much. If you've left a review and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.